It's out there. If you go to iTunes, you can um, look it up. For some reason, our, our logo, our icon is like all messed up, and so that actually makes it easier to find if you're searching. It's all like kind of blobby and blurry, um, but it's out there. Um, I know one person listens, and it's my mother-in-law, so that's pretty great. <laughs> um, we are in uh, first, or uh, sorry, John 1, verses 35 to 51. It seems like we have been in John 1 for a while, and that is true. Uh, this is, I believe, our fifth week in John 1, and next week we get to move on to John 2. And from um, there, it goes a little bit quicker. Uh, we won't be in the Gospel of John for a whole year um, or longer. Um, it'll be shorter than that. Um, but in the beginning, um, it's almost kind of punny here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? But in the beginning of John, uh, we've gone a little bit slower um, to kind of get some of the background, some of the history of what's going on, how John is approaching his gospel. Um, John uh, 1, 35 uh, to 51, this is uh, God's word. This is what it says. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, Who are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They didn't really answer him. He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You, should be, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, I'm sorry, Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of a backwards, we'll say like hick town. I kind of think of that way. Can anything good come out of there? Kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. And Philip said to him, Come and see. You'll be surprised. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and said to him, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Throughout the world, there are many people, many people groups who claim to be Christians. Even in the United States, um, because of kind of family background, heritage maybe, um, kind of close proximity to other Christians. 
people claim to be Christians, or in fact, they claim to be Christians because they do know the risen Son of God. Or I think it's more and more um, okay in our culture, and I actually don't think this is a bad thing, to not identify as a Christian just because that's kind of your background. But I think if you ask some of these same people who said with an emphatic yes that they are Christians, and ask them this question, and ask them to answer the question, are you a disciple of Christ? Many of them would not be so quick to answer. And even many of those who would be honest would have to say no. In truth, they are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Just merely call themselves Christian. So the question then that is begged to be asked is, what is a disciple? A disciple is a student Right, as we saw in this, we saw Jesus be called rabbi, teacher. So disciple, one to follow after a rabbi, after a teacher, a student, a learner, someone who actually is a lifelong learner. And another question that I often ask, because um, it, it makes us think more deeply about what it means to be a true disciple, is has to do with conversion. When did these disciples the ones we just read, or maybe the 12 disciples that we think of in the, um, the New Testament that followed Christ, when did these disciples become Christian? When did their hearts change? When did they truly know that Christ was the Messiah, was the risen Son of God? When did that act happen? Can we pinpoint it? Now, some of you might know the exact date in which you professed faith for the first time. But do you think these disciples knew that? Do you think they became Christians the minute they got up and followed Jesus? It's an interesting and thought-provoking question. Because we know all the way at the end, not everyone who called said, Lord, Lord, would enter the kingdom of heaven. We know that that all the disciples that followed Jesus did not truly believe, because we know that Judas actually did not. He followed Jesus because of the excitement of the crowd, of kind of the authority that he got, because he was in control of the money and some of that power. But in the end, he actually betrayed Jesus. When Jesus calls out to people, he simply says these, these two words, follow me. As a people who believe that there's something miraculous when we go from a disciple of this world, a student, a follower of the things of this world, and something miraculous happens and we become a disciple of Christ, we know that it all starts with a a new heart, a new mind, and a new purpose. We realize that we are now part of God's family and we follow him. And we are called to also make disciples R.C. Sproul kind of he puts it this way. Um, he said, we should take notice of what Jesus did not say in the Great Commission. If you remember the Great Commission, it's in Matthew 28, when he's telling disciples, go, right, if one of the ways I remember it from my childhood when we um, use the King James Version often is, go ye therefore. Right? Another way we can think of it is, as you are going, 
Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, I will be with you always. If you notice that, that's from the Great Commission, Jesus commissioning his disciples to go into the world. It also applies to us. But you notice he did not say, go, therefore, and make converts of as many people as possible. He didn't just say, go and get professions of faith from people and then move on. He said, go and make followers of me. Go and make lifelong learners of me, of Jesus, of the Messiah. I was at a, um, a church planner's pastor's retreat from Thursday night to, through Friday, um, and one of the questions that we got going was, how do we measure church success? Right? I, I think even that is the wrong phrasing, because we think of success in terms of worldly success. Um, sometimes it's... it's uh, these, these are like the brash under, underpinnings of some churches and some ways of viewing church and church planting. But um, some ways to measure are nickels and noses. Right? How much money you're bringing in and how many noses are sitting before you. And you're like, okay, everybody has one nose. Oh, that's one nose per person. Okay, that's people. Um, or pews and pesos. Like, these are real terms that people in some, some people, not, not me, in the church planting world use. And so how do we measure true success? I think another more spiritual way of looking at it is um, those that, um, like, how many baptisms did we have this year? Okay, we're getting better in our, in our way that we measure. Or how many professions of faith? And those are good things. I don't want to, I want to put those in the same categories as nickels and noses. Because baptisms are a reason to rejoice. But so are new births, physical and spiritual, and conversions. And a pastor that um, I I listen to his podcast, and um, you might enjoy it, it's called Doctrine and Devotion. It's um, the the lead pastor and his executive pastor. And there's some banter back and forth and some humor, um, but they um, also talk about serious things. And um, one of the things he said that always stick in my mind, he goes, He's like, and this is a Baptist speaking, and in the Baptist world, like the big baptism, that's that's a, that's it's a joyous moment, and it's true in the Presbyterian world as well. For those that are um, infants being baptized into the family of God, because we believe that children are part of the family of God, they're part of the church, not outsiders looking in, but actually insiders, part of in receiving the benefits of being part of the covenant community of God. But also we rejoice with baptisms of those professions of faith. But he said this. He said, I want to rejoice with that Christian after 10 years. Because that might be a better metric of measuring who is a disciple, follower of Christ, than just someone who's baptized and professes faith. Again, not something that we shouldn't rejoice. We should and celebrate and even maybe even clap when someone is baptized because it's a new life in Christ. But we should also be concerned about their discipleship, about their long-term purpose in following Jesus Christ. Because we are called to make disciples. 
And he tells disciples to be baptized and to obey his commandments, to follow his teachings. And so one thing we should know is that discipleship is done in community. Right? These, Jesus didn't say, follow me, okay, now go by yourself and be a disciple. And no, make more disciples and actually plant churches and start churches, as we see in the New Testament and Book of Acts and Paul's missionary journeys. But discipleship is done in community, and Amer- but Americans, we love our individualism. We love it. That's not an entirely bad thing. However, there are no truly, purely individual Christians. Because we are all part of the body of Christ. We make up the family of God. There are no Lone Ranger believers. And so in community, we do a number of things. Some kind of practical ways that we grow in our discipleship and our following of Christ. One is that we worship together, just like this morning, like we're here right now, as a body, right? There's, there's a big difference between listening to a sermon on your iPhone by yourself and actually being present with the body of Christ, worshiping together, confessing together, confessing our sins together, just like the church has done for thousands of years. We grow in preaching ministry. We know from Hebrews 4 that we learn and we grow by the preaching, the preached word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow. I mean, think of that imagery as the, the word of God pierces us. It gets into our very marrow. It helps us discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That no creature is hidden from the sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Something happens when we are in community and we hear the preached word, when we confess together, when we worship together. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a vastly different thing than just teaching, than just being taught. And actually, when I was at... Um, uh, the gym the other day, we were, we were talking about um, learning. And we were warming up, and like we were just kind of like stretching, and so we were just kind of having just, we weren't like out of breath or anything yet, and dying. We were just kind of talking, and, and as we were talking, we were talking about what it means to learn. And um, there's a couple of public school teachers, I go to, usually go to the 4 o'clock class, and all those public school teachers are getting out, and they're going to the gym right away. And so we were talking about kind of the philosophy of education and things like that. And, um, and one of the, one of the um, teachers said that she was te- teaching a high school class in education um, and how the kind of one school of thought was that um, memorization is useless. And then she looked at me because she, know, she knows our family and we think memorization is, is extremely valuable because it gives um, a deep well to children to pull from and that we're not always reliant on the Google machine to give us our answers, um, which can be helpful at time, at times. I know that we've said, like, ask Google. I don't want to say anything because it might, you know, if I say Siri, it might just kind of, she's listening, and I might pull it up. Um, 
But one of the things that I got to was I said, you know, because we believe something um, that there's more important things than just information passing between people or machines and people. That education isn't purely just me memorizing information or me passing information from one person to another, but it's actually formative. That it actually forms us in some way. Formation, right? Information, formation. And that me speaking or any preacher speaking isn't just information, like I could give you all the details about the Greek and the history and all that, which can be important at times, but it's not just information being passed from me up front to you so that you might have more information into your brains, but it's actually formative because it's the Word of God piercing us and changing us from the inside out. So yes, we might have information and it might change the way we think, but it's also changing our heart and the way that we live and love. And it's done in community. This is one of the great things about um, Presbyterianism, is that we're not alone. We don't believe that this church is just a church by itself, alone here, autonomous, apart from any other church, but that we are connectional in nature as the church. So this, um, this means that like when a man decides to go to seminary to get his Master's of Divinity because he wants to be a minister of the gospel, that that isn't just a decision that person makes alone, but it's a decision they make in the community of their local church, but also with the oversight of the presbytery, which is all the elders in a region. And so he, he discerns that call Am I a minister of the gospel? Should I go to seminary? Formerly in our um, denomination, this is called coming under care. That there's a church that cares about you. You're not just going to seminary to get more information and to be by yourself and decide, am I going to be a a pastor? I don't know. Um, Let me just decide on my own. But it's saying, no, I'm under care of other pastors and other elders who have a vested interest in seeing the gospel go forward and healthy pastors in good churches. And so, for us that matters, so like in, um, in December, we're going to have um, uh, a pastor come in, or I shouldn't say pastor, he's not a pastor yet, um, but he's under care and he's going to preach to us um, on the role of, in our, we're going to do an Advent series that goes prophet, priest, and king, and looking at the three offices of Christ as we move towards Christmas. And he's going, to be te- he's going to be preaching on the theme of prophet as it relates to Christ and how he fulfills that role, that office. Um, and uh, it, it's Isaac Hahn, for those of you that know him. Um, Isaac was actually a member of our church in Hartford. And then when we merged, he came and was a part of, ch- of the church, um, Christ Community Presbyterian Church in West Hartford, which is our mother church that has sent us to begin a work here. Um, and he has preached before. This isn't his first time. But he's now coming under care and getting um, oversight for some of this ministry that he's being trained to do. And right now he's an engineer at Pratt and Whitney, and he's taking classes online and in person and immersives and flying down to Orlando where his seminary is and, and learning. But he's going to have the opportunity within the body of Christ to preach and to learn um, how to grow in that. And we're going to receive and be formed by the Word of God coming forward as he is learning as well, and we are as well. Um, something that is coming down the pipeline, and we started before we started worship services, we were somewhat doing this, but we had um, 
gospel communities. So growing as disciples, um, not just in our large group gatherings, although it's this large, this is kind of small as we're starting, right? Um, but we're going to um, gather in each other's homes and disciple one another in what we call gospel communities because they are communities that are, that are about the gospel. We are formed through it as the love of Christ changes us and the good news changes us. And so um, these are, are more than just kind of small groups where we get together and maybe have a meal and just kind of talk, but it's truly life together, learning, sharing, growing, where we speak the truth in love, we get wisdom and counsel. Um, we even have the um, permission to um, correct and rebuke and love one another. When you hear um, when you hear someone or maybe even yourself coming out and you're speaking, you're realizing, you know, I'm believing a false gospel about this world. I'm putting my hope in something other than Jesus Christ. Whether it's your job or your relationships or your identity or your vocation or your calling. And we're going to equip one another in how we study the Bible and how we talk about it and how we live it together. Um, But those are kind of, I wouldn't say programmatic things, I don't like that language, but they're part of the institution, institutional life of the church. But I think discipleship often happens in just the ordinary things of life, the ordinary life that God has given to us. Right? They're not these huge world-changing events, at least from the world's perspective. They are huge world-changing events from our perspective as believers. But they are, they, they are cha- world-changing events in God's economy. And I'll put it this way. Pastor Kevin Young has a great quote um, that will always be etched in my mind, very similar to the other one that I, I um, shared earlier. And he said this, and it was in a book called um, Just Do Something, and it was for college students and young adults who are trying to discern God's will, and they're kind of stuck in this cycle of, but I don't know what God's will is. I still got to seek it out. It's some big mystery for me to unravel. And he said this in the book. He said, everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to change a diaper. What he's saying is this. He says, changing the world is changing a diaper. It's serving. It's doing little things. If your calling is to be a, a mom or a dad, that's where discipleship starts. Cleaning up the messes of your kids. Teaching them to eventually, hopefully, grow up and clean up their own messes as they mature and grow. There's a, um, I'll post this blog um, on our face or on, on the uh, our webpage and kind of and share it um, on our Facebook uh, page and our email. But it's from uh, Ligonier and it's uh, by this guy Eric Raymond and he wrote it in a blog called "Disciple Making Is Ordinary Christianity." So I think often when we hear go and go into all the world, go you therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and we think, oh man. I'm not called to go to Uganda and be a missionary. How am I going to fulfill this great commission? We, we, we overblow it and we make it too big too soon. Where we should think, how am I going to be a disciple and disciple others in the ordinary life that I already live? Here's a couple examples. 
we'll go through them that he gives from this blog. He says, discipleship happens when a guy wants to be married but doesn't have a game plan for how to go about it. And he asks another brother for guidance and help. This brother takes him out for lunch and talks through some biblical and practical principles. He then commits to pray for him, to be available for questions, and to meet occasionally to talk about his progress. Um, True discipleship, this isn't from the article, but it just reminded me, is when um, you see a brother in Christ who has stopped coming to worship altogether to seek other pursuits on Sunday mornings. And you seek him out and you meet with him for breakfast and for coffee and you challenge him from scripture to be with the family of God. Discipleship happens when a mom with two toddlers drops something off that she borrowed from another sister at church and during that exchange they get to talking and the young mom exposes her feelings of fatigue and failure to measure up to her perceived standards of motherhood. The other woman listens to her and reminds her of scripture and prays with her and continues to come alongside her of her for encouragement in the gospel. Um, this is this is big. I don't know, like mommy blogs and mommy guilt is a huge deal. Um, I think it always has been, but I think it with social media and kind of all this stuff out there of like, you know, the mom with, you know, it's like all these kids, but the, the house, the pictures are always like immaculate of the home and always the latest trends about putting the right decorations in. Like, that's, that's real stuff that goes on. We need to disciple one another in that. Discipleship happens when a dad points out um, some immodesty and disciples his son or his daughter about what true beauty is. The true beauty is in the heart and the character and will. And he continues to tell and show and emphasize the true beauty that God delights in. Discipleship happens when a brother notices another brother running hard after his job and neglecting his family and his ministry. And he comes alongside of his brother to remind him of true and lasting treasure and that, and that proper perspective on work. Um, true discipleship happens um, when... When you have a tragedy in your life and you, and you cry out to God, Abba, Father, and you don't understand what's going on or why God is doing this thing to you or this tragedy is happening in your life. And then later, as you, as you look to God and as you seek his truth and as you still mourn, you still struggle over it, and you see someone else going through that same struggle that same mourning, you can come alongside that person and share the truth of the gospel with them. How there's hope in Christ, even in the midst of sin and tragedy. I think of all the ways that true discipleship happens and can happen within the intimate covenant community of the body of Christ. There's an article that I read yesterday and I, I, I shared and it was, the church doesn't need more Starbucks. Um, and the premise of this was, 
that um, a lot of churches are going after bigger and better facilities, right? Trying to create the same atmosphere, maybe even have the same exact coffee house within the within the building. Same atmosphere as, as a local Starbucks, kind of this like cool hip vibe, uh, vibe. Um, and it pointed to uh, this family and this man who was dying over months and months and suffering over and over. And how a small local church served that family and cared for that family and prayed over that man dying in the hospital. And that church didn't have a Starbucks-like atmosphere in their building. Because that is true discipleship. That is true church. Now, can you have that with like a cool coffee? Like, okay, yeah, you can. But often we're running after the things of this world in our church instead of the things of God and the way that we measure ministry and the way that we measure growth and following after Christ being his disciple. And so for us, we need to just rearrange because we live in a world that is all about numbers. It's all about metrics. It's all about the sales, about your performance, about how many um, customer service calls you got finished in a certain amount of time. Um, I worked at Mass Mutual, and I use the term worked very loosely um, because it it was three months. Um, I had a job in um, Melissa, it's Mass Mutual Investor Services, and it wasn't customer service of like individuals, it was customer service for um, brokers of mass mutual products, investment products. And, um, and I jokingly say worked there for three months because we literally half of that time was training. It was actually fun. And then we got actually to working and it was my personal, and I've had some, I wouldn't say horrible jobs, but I've had some pretty kind of jobs I didn't particularly like. Like I delivered Chinese food, you know, in the worst areas of Springfield's um, when I was unemployed, just trying to make, you know, trying to make some money, um, it's that was probably the worst job I've ever had. Even though it was like air conditioned and nice, uh, I'll tell you why. Because there was a um, a screen right like this up on the wall, and it just continually changed with how well we were doing on the phones. Like the metrics were up there, you, you know average time on the phone like you had to had to be under a certain time it had all these metrics and i'd be looking at that and i'd be like trying to do this job and like it's all this new vocab and language and i'm just and like my heart my soul is being crushed as, as i look at that and i get that there's a reality of working nowadays um but i literally had to press a button on my phone to go the on my phone on my desk to go to the bathroom and like you're like, how long can I go to the bathroom? I don't know. Is that gonna mess up the metrics for the team? You know, it was. I mean, these are kind of kind of questions, and um, it was soul crushing. And we live in a world where that's the reality for most of us here. I think we work in environments like that, and so when we have to be very careful that we remove those ways of measuring success and performance to how the gospel measures discipleship. 
Because it's not based on performance. It's not based on, mm, let me tick marks. How many sins can I remember today that I committed? Okay, it was five today, but yesterday was six. So now the metrics are, you know, adding up and I'm getting better. Because what you're going to find is as you grow closer to Christ, and as you grow more mature in your faith, you're going to realize, as Paul did, that you are the chief of sinners. Because you're going to realize, man, my heart, it's not just the things that I do and the things that I say, but it's the things that I think. It's the inclination of my heart. It's the orientation of my life. Um, And if you notice, Paul, when he says that, he doesn't say that without hope. Because it's going to be like Psalm 130 all over again. I mean, listen to this psalm and how rich it is. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? None of us. Mark, if he could mark down in the metric system of the, let me just put up Joe's iniquities and sins, none of us could stand. If yours was up on this metric wall. Who could stand? No one. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. There's promises in God's word. That's why it's important for us to be in it as disciples, to memorize it, to know it. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Right, The watchman in the dark, peering into the darkness, hoping that morning comes because he can't see if someone's ready to, to notch an arrow and shoot it at him. He can't see what's beyond the light. Yet the morning comes and he can see and the fear is gone because darkness is scary. Yeah, right? Yeah, Audrey says yes. Is darkness scary? I think it can be. Kelly makes fun of me because one time we were camping like two years ago. I woke up in the middle of the night in the tent. It was so dark in there. My face was against the tent. Like I woke up and I literally could not see anything. And I started having a panic attack. Like I was like, I couldn't breathe. I was like, where's the zipper? Because darkness can be scary. Because you don't know what's going on, what's out there. But it says the the morning comes. The God of the morning is here. He shows us. When I read this um, psalm, I thought of Psalm 103. We memorized this, um, some of it as a family a while ago. And this is a a great song song because it shows us how good God is. And that we aren't just saved from our sins. That like we're just washed clean, but we're actually saved to newness of life. That we're saved to something and for something. To be disciples of Christ. For heavenly place that God is setting for, um, ready, making ready for us. So Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who raises your life up from the pit. Death. That's what that means. Death. The grave. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good. So that your youth is renewed 
like the eagles. That's what he does. And then for, for those, it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, he will, nor will he keep his anger forever. There's a judgment coming. But then there's hope. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. That psalm is like discipleship, in a sense. That we go back and forth between knowing that our, knowing our sins and knowing the forgiveness of God. Remembering our sins and repenting and knowing the forgiveness of God. Then knowing that God crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. That he actually gives us something. He doesn't just take away. He actually gives us something. Martin Luther um, had this what called double imputation, where, where Christ removed all that, was, all that was yucky and sinful and gross within us and has given, so that's imputed to him, and he took that on the cross for us, and we received, he imputed to us, received and gave to us all that is good, all his righteousness. Actually, he uses it on a, quote, um, a, a, a quote on marriage. Because it's the marriage, it's the bride and the groom. I actually um, read the quote at Stephen Kayleen's wedding this past summer. That he is the groom who takes all that is hers and gives us all that is his, with two becoming one. So remember that, that God loves us and he calls us to follow him. And that even though we sin, it's not a metric to be put on the board. It's something to be forgiven and Christ wants to forgive it. And we follow after him in community, being faithful to worship and coming to worship, to be faithful to one another and being in our lives together, discipling one another in groups and one-on-one as we live life together, as we struggle with the things of this world and this broken world, whether it's our sin or people sinning against us or if maybe something that is happening to us that's not even our fault, but that it's the pain and the brokenness that we're living with. We don't know how to go about our life or how, how does God fit into it. It's the body of Christ that helps one another. It's your world is falling apart and the hand of the body is there to help put it back together. So that you don't know where you're going in life and it's the feet that, of Christ that help you get there. all with Christ as our head. Let us go to God and pray. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we are yours, and that all that is gross and ugly and sinful about us has been taken away, and you've taken it upon the cross, and we bear it no more. That all that is good, that is yours, is now given to us including the Holy Spirit that helps us walk and follow you. That reminds us of your goodness, that molds and shapes us, 
Help us as we become lifelong learners and as we follow you. We pray in your name. Amen.